Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Creative Source with Andy Osho, the podcast about creativity for the creative in you. No matter where you are on the journey, it doesn't matter if you're starting out, if you're just coming back to the arts, or if you're just dipping a toe. This is the podcast for you. And uh, first off, as always, big shout out to my Patreon patrons. Uh, thank you guys for your continued support. I see you. So last week we started off a conversation around mental health. I uh, saw a stat that said that creatives are three times more likely to experience issues with mental health than in other industries. So I figured, you know, this is probably something worth giving a bit of time and space to. So actually we're going to do four episodes. The first two are, as I say, about looking at the issues that we as creatives may face, but ones are specific to us. And then um, in the last two episodes, we'll look at solutions, things that we can do to alleviate some of the challenges that we may face. Now, a lot of these are going to be obvious, but I think it's still worth talking about. And also, uh, I'm going to give personal uh, examples as well of where these things have made a difference, because a lot of times we can intellectually get something, but not experientially, by which I mean, yes, we get something as it like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And one day I'll try that as opposed to, hmm, I need that. And I can really feel in my body that that's what I need to do next. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's kind of how I see the difference. 
I should also add, as I said last week, look, I'm not a medical professional, so I'm just talking about my own personal experiences here. If you are struggling with any issue related to mental health, do make sure that you get the help that you need. There are a lot of outlets and places and spaces that you can go to that can support you, be they charitable organisations, maybe, uh, you know, organisations within your industry as well friends, family. And of course, there's the NHS. You can speak to your GP about what you're dealing with. And the solution will not necessarily be medical as in like, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals prescribed. I believe you can get talking therapies on the NHS as well. But anyways, um, that's a conversation to have with a trusted medical professional. So what I'm talking about is mainly from my own personal experience. And we started the conversation uh, last week about challenges we may face as creatives. So let's carry on that conversation about what else, what other areas of mental health sometimes can be a particular challenge for people working in the arts. So (laughs) as I was putting this together, I'd come up with my list and then I just went, oh, wait, social media. Because I think um, I was listening to someone's bite-sized advice and they mentioned social media and I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. Social media, especially as an artist, can be super triggering, including, you know, career jealousy and your FOMO, your fear of missing out. It is a challenge. And um, there's so much to social media. So I don't want to dwell on it because I'm actually going to do a whole episode on it anyways. But the thing that we need to be aware of, and like I mentioned in the success episodes um, prior to these, was that social media is a curated experience. We are seeing the very best of often the very best people, not as in you're better, one person is better than another, but, you know, people at the top of their game showing the very best of their day people don't post about the mundane on social media. So we have to really be conscious of what we're experiencing and be conscious of tuning in because the way that social media is designed, they are specifically looking for ways to keep you on their platform. So I definitely find with the infinity scroll that they have on Instagram that I almost zone out become hypnotized by it. So we have to be really conscious of that. And social media companies are doing what they're doing. And that is a conversation for another day. But all we can do for our own mental health is just be really super aware of the effect that it is having on us. I think there's some validity too in taking social media holidays, partly to obviously escape the social media. But doing that will highlight something to you about your relationship with social media, because I've definitely found that like I got rid of Twitter off my phone for a a, a number of years. I can't remember how many, maybe two or three. And at first it was really difficult to resist the impulse to go to Twitter, but I just found the environment way too toxic and I was contributing to the toxicity. So I was just like, let me get, let me get out of this. So I came off Twitter, but the impulse to go to Twitter stayed with me for maybe a month, two months of, oh God, Facebook and Instagram. That's all I've got. That's not as interesting. I want to go to, you know what I mean? Like I was having that experience, but eventually over time, I completely lost interest in Twitter. And even though now I'm back on it and I really only talk about my books, I don't really get into it on any sort of political level or social political level or anything like that. I just forget it. I've trained myself out of wanting to see what's on Twitter, but it takes a while. So social media holiday is really useful. 
Um, if you are, um, uh, you know, on socials, I think following palate cleanser accounts is a really good way of making the experience a bit more bearable. What do I mean by that? I mean, like, <laughs> I'm literally talking about follow accounts with kittens and beautiful sunsets and photography websites like Canon's Instagram accounts are just stunning photography um, that sort of punctuates that beautiful life scroll that you might be experiencing, that beautiful winner's life that can, you know, really trigger your own sense of uh, lack of self-worth or, you know, jealousy or whatever it is. I follow, um, yeah, quite a lot of accounts for uh, cats puppies, <laughs> photography, you know, people who travel the the world and just like post gorgeous images from around the world. And uh, it makes the experience much, much more palatable. So palate cleanser accounts, they're, they're not just there to, they serve a purpose as long as they don't trigger you because they could make you feel worse. Go, oh my God, I really want puppies and I can't have one. So you, that, that, you know, those accounts won't help, but yeah, any, any accounts that sort of break up the onslaught that is triggering you, but just going back to the jealousy aspect as well. Um, I think career jealousy is again, as I said in the previous episode, it's one of those things baked into the human experience, not career jealousy specifically, but just jealousy feeling like you want what the other person has. It's natural. And it is a very, very human experience. Uh, it, it probably gets accentuated if we tell ourselves we shouldn't be feeling it or we should feel good for the other person or we should feel guilty because we're, we're experiencing jealousy. It is totally natural and probably something to be embraced rather than to browbeat yourself with because it's not going anywhere. And you know, jealousy is not the same as, oh, is it envy? I can't remember which way around it is, but you're not wishing the other person didn't have the opportunity, basically. You're just wishing you had good stuff come your way too. What I often experienced with jealousy was I'd sort of arbitrarily pick people that I knew or that, yeah, that I was familiar with. It was work I was familiar with. And their wins, I automatically took as my loss. So if they won, I was losing. And it really, I won't bore you with the uh, sort of triggering incident that I tracked that back to from my childhood, but I could see that there was a point in my childhood where that story got set in motion, that if somebody was winning, someone close to me was winning, that automatically meant I lost. Because in that instance, the thing that happened in childhood, that is what actually happened, or that's certainly how it occurred. And so based on what the mechanics of, of, of being a human are, that those, we start to impose that story on the world, that that's what the world is. Someone wins, someone close to me wins, therefore I lose. And we've all got our own versions of that. So when I was seeing career wins in peers and people that I knew, it was, could be, it could cause despair sometimes because I so had this story that their win was my loss. And you may have, you know, whatever your experience of seeing peers winning and having a negative uh, response, you'll have your own version of that. Some people, it doesn't affect at all because they just mind the business. But for me, it was that. And it took me a long time before I even saw it. I just lived in the despair without acknowledging, actually, it doesn't have to be like this. Uh, a very good friend of mine uh, said to me once, it's just information. 
And that really broke something open for me. I mean, I've been working on this for a while anyways, but when he said that, I was just like, of course it is. And equally, it really isn't personal. I mean, obviously it's not personal, but when you experientially, remember I was talking about that distinction, get it in your body like it's a truth. When you experientially get, God, it's not personal. That person just won. And who knows what journey they went on to get there? And who knows whether they even want that win? You know, who knows loads of things around it? All you know is the information. Such and such got cast in such and such, or such and such got a book deal, or so-and-so has got their paintings hanging in such and such gallery, or so-and-so has got this many followers now. It's just information. And a lot of folks will go, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that. But I'm not talking about what you know, I'm talking about what you feel, because there's a level of our being that is happening at a level that is beyond the mind. And so even though sometimes we're capable of saying, oh yeah, I know that. Really? You know that. But what does your being do? What does your body do? Because that's where you can really change your experience of these things. Or, you know, career jealousy may not even be a thing for you. But jealousy in comparison is affects a lot of people, myself included. And comparison is also a, um, a constituent part of being a human being. It's also baked into the system that we compare. But what is also in the system is that we can override. We have the ability to override. So if we catch ourselves in, in this uh, acute comparison stage or state, we can do something about it. We can go, ah, there's me doing that thing again. There's me doing my mm, career jealousy, blah, blah, blah. Because let me give you another example. The other way I was at uh, my first book festival. It was amazing. It's it called the Prima Donna Festival. And it's run by these incredible women that the, their, their ethos is the world as it should be. So it's this crazy, like diverse, beautiful um, festival that's so inclusive and embracing of like so many like different types of people from come from different areas. And it's, it's mainly books, but I think there's music there as well and poetry and a bit of comedy and stuff as well. But um, while I was there and I was there for two days and the vibe was so like just embracing, like you just felt like you're, I was there on my own, but I never once felt like, oh, this is awkward. I'm just at a festival on my own. And that's rare. I think a lot of festivals, you want to go with your mates or whatever. Anyway, I was there sort of talking, did did a couple of panels and talked about asking for a friend. And um, I realized that well, I was on social media less, but I also realized like I wasn't doing that massive like career comparison thing because I was sort of in my element. I was minding my business. I was literally, my attention was on my stuff and uh, how nice this experience is. And that experience sustained me for quite a while afterwards. It had a quite a nice afterglow in the sense of like, I don't need to worry about what so-and-so is doing or what so-and-so has been casting or so-and-so is writing because there's, there's a part of me that just automatically creates invalidation. So why bother? Why not just focus on what I'm enjoying in my own life and in my own career? And then I can just enjoy that rather than just getting sucked into this like jealousy vortex. So I know it's easier said than done, but it is possible to um, experience career jealousy is just this thing that happens and then move on beyond it. But also I think it's really important to just acknowledge it, acknowledge it. It's there because I think career jealousy can make us say mean things uh, about or have a mean attitude towards people when actually really what you're experiencing is jealousy. You go, oh, that wasn't very good. Or I didn't really think that they were up to that job. Or I think they were miscast. I do that all the time. <laughs> I think someone said it was miscast. 
really, I wish I'd got that job. <laughs> so, so just even acknowledging will, will change your behaviors and uh, make something else possible. So guys, if you would like to support this podcast with a one-off donation, then head over to Acast. The link is in the show notes where you can make a one-off contribution. Minimum £3, maximum 3000 I mean, don't be shy. <laughs> roll up, roll up. <laughs> but um, every penny goes to uh, just keeping the conversation going. It's not like mad expensive to create a podcast, but it's not cheap either. It's not free. So everything you can offer really goes a long way to helping keep this conversation going. So another thing that we as as creatives can experience is procrastination. Now, there's a whole episode about procrastination with some fabulous bite-sized advice on there as well. So I'm not going to go long on this, but all I'll say is like stress, it is not necessarily a given that it's a bad thing unless it hurts you. Is it useful procrastination or is it unhelpful or unproductive procrastination? Because the useful one is, you know, those people who just love a deadline. Some people just work really well under pressure. I'm, I'm like a slow, steady type of person. I like to, okay, if I've got to deliver a thing in August, I will plan the three months leading up to it or however long I've got so that I'm doing a little bit every day, incremental, incrementally chipping away at the task. Some people, they need to start like week, 10 <laughs> of 12. Do you know what I mean? That's what they need. But oftentimes people who are doing that, they're not, not thinking about the thing. They may not be aware of it, but they probably are having conversations about what in, in their mind, about what they're going to do, what they need to achieve with this thing. So that when they do start in week 10 or whenever it is, they actually hit the ground running. Everyone's got their own way of working. And as long as it is working for you and not hurting you, nothing wrong with it. But then there's the unhelpful procrastination, the one that does hurt you, the one where you make decisions or tell yourself stories about yourself, that you're no good, that you're worthless, that you're not able to do something. That's the procrastination that is a concern. And that's the one that uh, as a, a professor that I read up on described, and I, and I mentioned this in the episode, he says it's a form of self-harm. So all I will say is I invite you to look at if you do experience procrastination, is it harmful to you? And if so, then it's something that may need to be looked at. Like I say, I just kind of randomly picked these. These are things that I've experienced or been aware of in my space, but there will be other things. And, you know, actually, if you want me to discuss other um, areas of mental health issues or challenges that as creatives we often face, then please uh, comment on the uh, Instagram and we can do another episode, another follow-up episode, or I can do it in the bonus content. Um, but well, that's only available to patrons. So maybe I'll do another episode. Anyway, yeah. If there's other areas you want me to look at, then just um, let me know. I pick stage fright as another one because uh, it's a thing. It is a real thing. When you ask people what their biggest fear is, often it is public speaking. So it is no small thing to experience stage fright as a performer. Like procrastination and stress, it's not that there's good stage fright and bad stage fright, but there's a fear of going on stage that does not get in your way, doesn't stop you doing it. I would, when I was doing stand up, I, I would experience fear, but it wouldn't manifest in my body physically. Like I could, I could tell my jokes, my hands weren't shaking, my legs didn't, my knees didn't go weak. I was just like, ooh, this could be terrible. 
<laughs> and then I'd get on with it. It's essentially a fear of an existential death. You might die. You know, it's not by chance that when uh, a comedian having a bad gig is called dying. That's not by chance because what people are fearing is an existential death, a a hatred coming from the audience, a a cancelling from the audience. You're not good enough. You don't impress us. We don't want you. A rejection, a death. You are no longer valid in society. Now, people might not be having those thoughts, but that's essentially what's going on, which is why it's, it's such a big fear. Now, if you're a performer and you're experiencing stage fright and it's, debilitating, like stopping you doing what you're, what you're meant to be doing. Suddenly, Cause sometimes it can suddenly just come on, get help. Cause it's unlikely to get better without some form of intervention. Even if the support or help that you get is just talking it out with friends. Now this is an extreme example. I'm not suggesting doing this, but this is what happened when I got stage fright. So it was circa 2006 and my acting career, had I'd come out of the gates pretty good. I'd got some nice TV roles, doing some plays and things like that. And then things just started slowing down. And I, and I remember doing a play reading to an invited audience. So it's a very small audience at the Royal Court. And I was tripping over my words and stumbling and terrified every time, um, you know, my line, uh, a line for me to, to speak came up. And it started this process of me thinking like, man, I, this is serious. How do I get out of this? And I, at the same time, was also looking at which actors have careers that I really like. And I happened to look at three amazing black women who'd all started as stand-ups. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And then eventually I did, because I said to myself, I've got to get over this stage fright. And the way that I felt like I could do that was taking more ownership of how often I was being given the opportunity to perform. Now with acting, you can't just do it in a vacuum on your own. You can't sort of busk acting or you can't just go to an open mic acting night. You know what I mean? You can go to classes and stuff like that, but it's just not the same as being, you know, front and center performing. But with stand up, I mean, if you want to, uh, you, and you can, you know, get on, uh, get on with enough promoters, you could gig every night, you could twice a night, every night of the week. And so I said to myself, that's what I've got to do. And I think it worked. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I don't get fear, like I say, but, you know, it, it definitely gave me a confidence uh, on it, in terms of performance. That stage fright in that way never happened again. Happened around singing. That's a different thing. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a singer. I, I, I can hold a note. And so that's why when um, I did that comic relief thing, we we sang Ness and Dorma for comic relief in 2021. Yeah. March, 2021. I was absolutely terrified and it was out of my range. And my voice was like, I'm glad I did it. But I just realized like, uh, it takes balls of steel to be able to sing live because you have so much vocal control. And one of the things that happens with stage fright is you're losing a lot of physical um, control. You don't have necessarily have as much control over your vocal cords. Your voice is shaking. You don't have uh, control over your body. Your temperature's going up. Your, your, your body's shaking. So, so there's a lot happening physically. So that was my solution to it. But here's something that's a bit more achievable. <laughs> so I think this is a, a technique that's used uh, by people who are experiencing high anxiety. But uh, I, I learned it from uh, a woman who came to sag After, which is the American Actors Union. And she just did a talk about calming yourself before auditions. And so she says, I, I, I don't know what the name of the technique is, but you basically 
select five calming things. You go through, or you go through this process of five calming things. So the first thing is in the space that you're in, you identify five things you can see. So you literally just name them. So in my room, I can see a monitor. I can see uh, a Bluetooth keyboard. I can see my diary. I can see a pencil, pink pencil and rubber. And then you say four things you can hear. Okay. So I can hear the tube. I can hear my voice because I've got headphones on. Can hear someone knocking next door. I can hear someone talking outside. Three things you can smell, then two things you can touch and one thing you can taste. And the idea is that this brings you back into the present. It brings you back into the room because if you've got stage fright, it means you're worrying about something that isn't happening right here. Because obviously right here, there's no, there's no threat. You're in the audition room or you're in the reception of a place you're having a meeting or you're in the backstage area. Do you know what I mean? There's no, there's no threat. So this fear is something that you're creating that isn't here or the threat is, isn't there. So by going through this process, five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can smell, two things you can touch, one thing you can taste. That brings you back into the room. And another thing I would say about stage fright is that if one can get one's attention off oneself, and onto the task at hand. This will really support you again in being present. What do I mean by that? I'm not saying lose a sense of who you are or where you are. What I'm saying is, okay, let me give you an example of when I was in an acting class. The coach, and this will be applicable across all disciplines. They said, you know, I think the speech that I was doing was trying to tell uh, my son or my child that they were going to be okay. And the, and because it was such a well-written speech, it was very emotional. The temptation would be to indulge the emotion because actors like to feel emotions when they're doing scenes and stuff and cry. I could cry on cue, you know? And so we did that one and I did the crying and all the rest of it. And then they said, no, your objective is to make sure that your kid hears what you're saying. They feel that you, you, that you're going to look after them. And so your attention needs to be on the kid. Is that kid getting, or the actor playing that kid, are they getting the message? Are they receiving this communication? And in which case there's no time, no space, no room to indulge all these emotions. So that's what I mean by getting your attention off yourself, put your attention on the task at hand. And as someone who is about to go into a speaking engagement or stage performance where stage fright might be an issue, your attention needs to go on to delivering the message. Has the audience received what I want to give them? Have they heard this song? Have they received this poetry? Have they felt this performance? Have they gotten it? Not, am I doing a good job? Uh, Is this okay? How do I look? How do I sound? That's when your attention is on yourself. And that isn't what the, you're there in service of whatever you're there to deliver. Also with stage fright, I feel like good preparation is key. The times that I felt most secure when I was doing something like, say Mock the Week was the times, uh, and if you're not from the UK, it's like basically a comedy panel show. And it's quite high, high stakes (laughs) because a lot of people watch it and a lot of people comment if you're not very good. Um, The times that I felt really most secure in an environment like that, which is probably where I felt the most stage fright, as it were, was when I was best prepared. Like if you feel like, cause then I, the analogy I use for not feeling prepared is like wearing roller skates in an ice rink. You know what I mean? Like it's already slippery on ice, but then wearing roller skates as well is, is like doubly worse. So the more you can prepare for whatever it is that you've got to do that could trigger stage fright, the calmer 
and more more stable the experience is going to be because you're prepared. And remember, it's okay to have a little bit of nerves because it means you care. So if you would like to carry on this conversation, do head over to the Facebook group, Creative Source Network. And this is just a friendly space I want to create for everyone who's enjoyed the podcast and just generally creatives to meet, chat, you know, maybe um, collaborate and just find your people, find your tribe. So if that sounds like something for you, head to the show notes wherever you get your podcast and there will be a link that will take you to the Facebook group or you can just search Creative Source Network. Hello, you're listening to Creative Source with Andy Osho and me, Caroline Quentin. So a couple of other things I'm going to talk about. One is creative block. This is something that, I, again, I, I've talked about um, in a previous episode. There was a whole episode on writer's block. So in that episode, I give a lot of pointers as things you can do, change your environment, um, use placeholder entities or whatever, because it depends what, what field you're working in. But you can put placeholders in so you don't feel that pressure. And essentially, creative block comes when we, cause I don't believe that creative ideas ever stop flowing, but what can happen is that you don't like what comes and that we call creative, uh, or writer's block. Just write down what comes because often once that gets out of the way, it allows something to flow through. But I talk about this extensively in a previous episode, specifically about writer's block. So if that's something that you have concerns about or have struggled with, go back to that episode. But also if it's debilitating and it's been going on a while and it's stopping you from working, get help. A lot of this is going to be, if it's severe, get help. And it doesn't matter what it is because long-term creative blocks that are stopping you is probably an indication of something else. Maybe there's some underlying depression or maybe there's, some, there's something else there because that is a symptom. The creative block is a symptom. It's not the thing itself. So if you feel like it's something that's stopping you and the solutions that I have offered in that previous episode don't make any difference, then I would say, yes, yeah, speak to somebody. But listen, why don't we have some more bite-sized advice this time from Shlomo who talks about mental health. Now he's spoken extensively on this topic and he's been very open about and generous, generous as hell about the challenges that he's faced. And I really appreciate his, um, yeah, just his candor around this area because the more people that's making a path, pathing a way for others to be able to speak their truth about this and not feel like they have to hide in shame about what they're experiencing. So this is what he had to say about mental health. If you can share your vulnerability with others, you will not only make your own self more safe, you will also make them feel more safe and you will empower them to A, be more likely to get support with their mental health, but B, be more likely to be there for you when you need help. And I'm talking from lived experience when I got really, really sick with my mental health. I've done a TED talk about this. I've been really open about it. The TED talk's called uh, Social Media Saved Me From Suicide. And I got to a really, really bad place. Um, but because I'd been open uh, in the build-up to this moment, 
on social media, I told the world that I was at risk. It meant people could be there for me um, and people have been checking in with me every day, uh, friends, family and fans, just to see if I was okay because they knew I needed support um, and that actually saved my life. So people often ask me, what should I do if I'm worried about someone else's mental health? And then what I say is that the last thing you should do is confront them about it. A much stronger thing to do is to confide in them about your own vulnerabilities. Uh, and by doing that, you'll show them that you're a safe person without being confrontational. And they're much more likely to trust you. And they're much more likely to be there for you too. So it's a double win. A double win. Um, yeah, like I say, he's he's awesome and he's spoken. Yeah, you should, I'll put a link for the um, TED Talk in the show notes as well so that you can check that out. But yeah, he he's spoken very openly about the fact that he got to a very dark place. And um, that's where social media actually was a positive because he, he was candid about it basically. And so people knew what was happening, were, were able to support him through that challenging time. He's a real advocate for sort of mental health and people just acknowledging whatever they're, whatever they're going through. So do check out his, um, his Instagram, SK Shlomo, but he's also, you know, he's an amazing beatboxer and musician. And I think he's touring at the moment as well. He's, uh, doing beatboxing for kids, uh, which, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a joyful show. So do check out his work. He's Absolutely amazing. Now, uh, anxiety and depression uh, are probably probably the most common. That's that would be my guess around mental health. For me, I'm kind of mildly anxious. I I, I didn't think I was an anxious person, but then I really got present to this sort of constant flutter in my chest of like, oh, what's going to happen? Sort of what's what's going on? Sort of thing. Or this isn't. It's not going right. Or so, I don't know what the what the what the conversation that accompanies it is, but it's something like that. But f- for me, the biggest of the two, depression has definitely been the thing I've been challenged by most. Most severe uh, experience of it was around 2012. And strangely, I was like at the height of my notoriety, if you will, um, with stand up. I was on a lot of shows. I was, I'd done two live at the Apollos and Mock the Weeks. And I was on all kinds of panel shows and things. People were having me on things. And I was absolutely exhausted and profoundly depressed. And I remember Googling living in America, <laughs> working in America, working in Hollywood or something. Like, I just went, I just went for a break. I needed to stop. But I, I did that alongside, uh, well, when the depression started, I started having therapy basically. So um, I went back to someone that I'd worked with before and it was a godsend. Like I came out the other side of that, just feeling like a different different person really it was just so vital for me to have gone through that experience there's not a lot I can add to that other than that if you're going through something like that it's imperative to get help I know I've said get help get help get help but depression doesn't have to be that way I'll talk about this more in the solutions uh, episodes but one has to be careful who one gets help from and not everyone is equipped to deal with people's mental health. I've had problems, I don't know, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, but with my mum, she's not very good at dealing with mental health, other people's mental health issues. 
because she doesn't know. She just wants to fix things. And sometimes fixing isn't what's required. I don't know if you ever saw my blog about people giving advice, but it's kind of that thing. It's like sometimes what, what often people need when they're struggling is to be heard. They just want someone to get it. Just go, I get it. Not, oh, I get it. Yeah, that happened to me once. And yeah, and then you talk about you you for like the next 10 minutes. They want someone to just go, man, that I, I can't imagine. That sucks. I'm sorry that's happening to you. I get it. You know, what do you need from me right now? Do you just want to sit? Do you just want to talk? Do you need a hug? Ask them what they need. Often people make arbitrary decisions. They make sort of executive calls on what the person that they're trying to support needs. I'll do this for you. I'll get you that. I'll take you to blah, blah, blah. Get yourself out for a walk. Put yourself together. You don't know. You don't know that that's what that person needs. You're not in their shoes. When I volunteered for the Samaritans, one of the things that they said to us in our training was you don't say, how can I help? You say, can I help? And there's a big difference because how can I help is assuming that you can. You might not be able to. You know, when someone's struggling, sometimes just being there is the only thing that you're able to give. And sometimes that's enough. Sometimes doing more is too much. So if you are struggling with depression, don't suffer alone. But you will have to be careful about who you talk to if you talk to a non-professional, because it's a thing that people are still learning how to how to deal with. And you've seen, by the way, that, you know, even people reacted to Simone Biles in the Olympics, telling some people saying she needs to toughen up when she was describing actually having an experience that would have been dangerous for her to perform her, you know, the gymnastics people telling her to toughen up. So some people do not have a, a very progressive attitude towards um, mental health. So make sure you find the people that can just make space for you, hold space for you. Let's have a listener's comment. So George says, a little over 30 years ago, almost to the month, I was on the other side of the fallout from someone taking their own life because they felt it was the only option left to end the suffering. And that leaves a lasting impact. If someone asks if you are okay and you're not, open that door. It makes a world of difference. Okay, guys, look, I hope you're getting benefit from this conversation. If you would like to support with a Patreon subscription, do feel free to head over to the Patreon page. You will find a link in the show notes and there's different tiers that you can come in at. Most popular has been the entry level one. Just like a little something, a little nod to the podcast to help us keep the lights on, keep the conversation going. If you feel like that's you, then please head over to the Patreon page and uh, your support would be very much appreciated. So guys, that concludes these two episodes talking about uh, some of the mental health issues that uh, we encounter as artists. I know that there are many, many more, but there's some here to break the conversation open, maybe start a dialogue uh, for yourself or with someone close to you. And it might give you the impetus to sort of seek help if that's something that you need. If you are struggling, do remember that there are charitable organizations, um, also industry organizations that you can go to that will be able to support you. Loved ones too, as I mentioned, and obviously medical professionals, but don't suffer in silence. You don't need to, because we can often get so comfortable in our discomfort that we don't realize that it doesn't have to be this way. 
but it doesn't. It really doesn't. So thank you guys, as always, for listening in. Thank you for the bite-sized advice from Shlomo. Do check out his Instagram. I'll put a link to the TED Talk and his Instagram in the show notes. Thank you to George for your listener's comment, um, to Martin Lumsden for the post-production, Clydesdale Music for the theme tune, and your sub-up for the marketing, and to you guys, as always, for coming back and listening again. Until next time, look after yourself, keep creating and living in gratitude. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Creative Source. If you're looking for more support with your creative journey, I'm offering one-to-one online mentoring. Perhaps you want to launch a project but don't know where to start. Maybe you've got stuck around a certain issue, need some advice, or just want to bounce ideas around. Whatever it is, I'm here. Just hit the Patreon link in the show notes or go to patreon.com forward slash creative source with Andy Osho to find out more.